0: hello everyone welcome to the international business podcast if you work across time zones borders and cultures this is the show for you i'm leonardo founder and host of the show but let's make it simple and just call me leo i'm based in shanghai and i'm accompanied by two co-hosts stefano based in paris and audrey from san francisco coming up on today's episode
1: you're seeing a very dangerous world in my mind where the americans are saying to everyone, either you're with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, that means you're with China. It's a very dangerous situation. And so I definitely see a decoupling of the world. I don't expect, Leo, in my lifetime that U.S.-China relations are going to improve dramatically. Um, I'm hoping they will in my kid's lifetime. But it's a it's a very dangerous situation and it's causing a lot of havoc in supply chains and business planning for companies around the world. You know, China has become the leader in electric vehicles, right? I mean, Tesla's there, but a lot of people in the rest of the world don't know about Xiaopeng. They don't know about Li Xiang, Wei Lai or Neo. You know, there's a scores and scores of great Chinese brands that are emerging in the electric vehicle space that all need nickel and cobalt.
0: Sean is the Founder and Managing Director of the China Market Research Group, CMR, the world's leading strategic market intelligence firm focused on China. He works with boards, billionaires, heads of states, and CEOs of Fortune 500 and leading Chinese companies to develop their China growth, political, and investment strategies. Sean authored the international bestsellers The War for China's Wallet, Profiting from the New World Order, The End of Chip China, and The End of Copycat China. You can find more details in the show notes now let's get into it hi sean i'm glad to have you on welcome to the show
1: leo it's great to be here thank you for inviting me i know you were in touch with me a year ago uh it's glad that we both finally we're able to get together and have time to do this interview. I've been looking forward to it. Unfortunately, it's because both of us are locked down in quarantine in Shanghai. So you'll have to excuse me and the audience will have to excuse me if I have to run out and get a COVID test. Because at this stage, my time is not my time. It's based on whenever the government tells us we have to go wait in line and get that COVID test
0: to keep us all safe. Absolutely. I've just done three tests. And I think I'm going to do a fourth one either later today or tomorrow. But
1: Oh, wow. Now, were you originally under lockdown for 48 hours or was it a longer period? And are they doing it in the nose or in the mouth?
0: Number one, they're doing it in the mouth, so that's okay. And uh, I'm being stuck since Monday, actually.
1: Oh, wow. So it's been a week. Was it a re- always planned to be this long or did it just keep getting extended?
0: Mm, the latter. It was extended. It was supposed to be 48 hours, but it's okay. We can get food. We can get everything. I'm working from home, like millions of people have been doing for the past two years. So it's okay. I really have no complaint.
1: Yeah, and I, I think we don't have complaints on our side either, and I think that's really important. I think it's a great opportunity, Leo, for both of us who are on the ground in China to be able to talk about what's really happening here. Because when you read the New York Times and you read the media reports, especially from the United mm-hmm. States, which I'm most familiar with, I think they mm-hmm. they call a lot of the COVID response here draconian you know, this is what the New York Times has said. And I think they've really given a very biased view of what's happening here. Um, Sure, it's a little inconvenient. But at the end of the day, you know, I've got a lot of respect what the Shanghai government has done in order to contain things and keep us safe so far. And I don't feel like it's draconian. I'm still going outside, getting 20, 30 30,000 steps a day in and able to exercise and we can still order food. So everything's pretty good.
0: Yes, I agree. Me personally, last week, have been a little bit lazy so i worked 12 hours a day but did zero sport So next week if i'm still locked down i'm gonna do better
1: (laughs) well you're (laughs) a young guy you're you're only 32 33 right so you know one you know aside from good advice on china which i'm gonna give you in the audience soon uh one of the other best advice i can give you as a much older guy is you gotta stay healthy so i'm on a very strict exercise routine and um, as soon as I heard there was gonna be these rolling quarantines, I went out and I bought a home exercise. So I've got, and I can even show you, well, actually, I guess this is a, an audio cast, but I've got my, um, weightlifting dumbbells right next behind me. I'm sitting in my closet right now, and this is the only quiet place that nobody else in the family wants to come to. So this is where I do all my TV interviews, and this is where I do all of my me time, so my exercise workouts. I've got the rubber band stuff here, and I've got the actual heavy weights right behind my couch in my closet.
0: Sean, let me ask you this. Why would you define yourself as an international professional?
1: Well, I think I'm somebody who believes in mutual respect and finding common ground and learning from different cultures. So when I was a little kid, what might surprise a lot of people is I don't come from a big business background. A lot of people think I must have a tycoon father or tycoon grandfather. But actually, my father is a ballet dancer. Um, He danced with American Ballet Theater. And he always raised me to respect other people and we weren't very rich growing up but he always said sean if you ever want to go to another country if you ever want to learn another language i will find the money to send you so he sent me to eastern europe i lived with a family in romania i lived with a family in poland i lived with a family in hungary right after the berlin wall fell down and so i've always been really excited about learning about different cultures and finding mutual respect so That's, I guess, how you could say I'm an international businessman is my whole life has been based on respecting others and learning from them. I don't believe that one political system, one value system, one religion, one culture, one anything is the only way and correct way of doing things. Everything's kind of equal. And that's how I ended up, uh, you know, moving into the international business community.
0: So there is an undeniable trend in the use of the sentence decoupling from China. Number one, is this possible? And number two, can you elaborate on this, Sean?
1: Yeah, you know, a couple of years ago when Trump uh, was still president, I went on Marketplace with BBC uh, Radio and I said that we're sort of in the 1930s and I feel we still are. You know, we're moving towards a very negative world um, and I'm worried that we're going to enter into a World War III Um, Basically, the United States is not being gracious in allowing for China's rise. So in my mind, I'm American. I love the United States, but I'm very critical of what the Trump and the Biden regimes have done to China, where they're trying to clearly contain and destabilize China's growth. You've seen it with how they've crippled Huawei on national security grounds. They've crippled a lot of the tech sector, like DJI drones or SenseTime. They can't source from American companies. They've also, I believe, have been involved with Taiwan and and in Hong Kong and causing a lot of the pro-democracy riots. I actually don't call them pro-democracy movements. I think there's a lot of underlying bigotry and racism towards mainland Chinese in there. And also what you see with what I consider to be um, allegations without evidence of forced labor or of genocide in Xinjiang. I was in Xinjiang twice last year. I visited cotton fields. I visited factories, I didn't see any evidence of genocide or forced labor. So that's sort of a long-winded intro, Leo, but basically the way I view it is the United States does not wanna share power, does not wanna share the superpower stage with China. And so they're forcing a decoupling. And so right now in the business community, it's a very dangerous time. As a consultant, when I work with my clients, you know, we're trying to figure out, can you still continue to source from China? And the answer is probably no. There's one company I'm working with where they moved their factories to Taiwan because they think Taiwan is more pro-democracy and they're gonna be able to manufacture there and be able to get the products at a much lower tariff into the United States and coming from mainland China. So you're gonna see when we work with Chinese companies, they're telling us we can't rely on American companies like an Intel or Qualcomm or Texas Instruments in the supply chain Because at any point, the United States might ban us from being allowed to buy American parts. What that means is Chinese companies have to focus on Chinese companies in the supply chain. So you're seeing a very dangerous world in my mind where the Americans are saying to everyone, either you're with us or you're against us. And if you're against us, that means you're with China. It's a very dangerous situation. And so I definitely see a decoupling of the world. I don't expect, Leo, in my lifetime, that US-China relations are going to improve dramatically. Um, I'm hoping they will in my kid's lifetime. But it's a a very dangerous situation. And it's causing a lot of havoc in supply chains and business planning for companies around the world.
0: The Chinese economy is moving away from exports to domestic consumption. So rising incomes will create opportunities and are creating opportunities opportunities for foreign brands to sell products in china rather than just producing in china
1: you know china it's quite remarkable i've been in china actually i arrived 25 years ago i guess 24 years and two months ago i arrived in china to study mandarin at nankai university in tianjin and it's hard to describe just how poor china was at the time you know um you would see thousands of people on the street with little cardboard signs saying we'll work This was right after Zhu Rongji launched the major state-owned enterprise reforms where a lot of people became unemployed as the government rightly tried to force more efficiency in SOEs. Now, China has already crossed the 10,000 US dollar per person uh, per capita um, income level. So it's already passed by that mid-income trap that a lot of American um, economists kept worrying that China was gonna collapse economically and implode If it couldn't pass that. Now, China is about, it's on the brink, actually, Leo, of becoming a high income country. Now, what that means is China has become a great market for Western brands. So, China is now the largest market in the world for Adidas globally. It's now become the largest market after the United States for Apple, for Starbucks. You know, there's more KFC fried chicken sold in China than in the United States. So, China should be viewed for the world's largest companies as their major growth engine. Now, That said, there is going to be some rough patches going forward. You know, you see, aside from geopolitics, which we just talked about in the decoupling, you're also seeing the rise of domestic Chinese brands. And these Chinese brands are as good, if not better, than a lot of the foreign brands. You know, for instance, I'm wearing Anta pants right now um, because they were as comfortable and better quality than Adidas. You know, I just don't buy Adidas anymore. I'm not sure why anyone would. When Chinese sports apparel brands like Leaning Li and Anta have a very competitive product at a great price. And so I think gone are the days when Western brands from Italy or the United States can just come in and say, we're Italian by our way of life, by that lifestyle, it's just not going to happen anymore. And I think that a lot of the Western brands just are not prepared. They're not very sophisticated and they're going to get their butts kicked. Um, in the coming years, to Chinese brands.
0: Your book, The End of Cheap China, exposes the end of America's consumeristic way of life and offers advice on how companies can succeed in the new world order. So China's days as a low-cost production center are numbered. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, I think you know China is not a cheap place to manufacture anymore, right? I mean, even pre-COVID we estimate it to only be about 10, 15% cheaper than in the United States. When you factor in tariffs, you factor in shipping, you factor in um, efficiency of the workers. So you don't want to just set up your manufacturing in China to think of it just for export. You want to set up manufacturing in China to be close to the Chinese consumer. You want to be close to the market here. Um, But I think what we've seen with COVID is it's a mistake um, to have all of your supply chain really in one country. You know, I, when you see there's a lot of shipping glaze from China into the United States by two to three months because of COVID, because there are too many sick workers in the LA ports and just because of the transportation problems across the Pacific ocean. So I think, you know, what we recommend to companies is you need to take a China plus one or two other market hub strategy. So you might want to also have manufacturing in Mexico. You might want to have manufacturing in Vietnam. Um, you know, maybe somewhere in Africa, you know, for a while, Ethiopia was very hot, but with the civil war going on there, right now, I'm not sure Ethiopia is a place to be. But China's, I think, is, has lost its perch as the dominant low-cost manufacturing sector. However, China's not lost its strength and the number one position as manufacturing center it's gone up the value chain. And you see like they're doing great stuff in automotive, aerospace. So China is still a manufacturing juggernaut. It's just not producing crappy Adidas shoes anymore. They're now producing Teslas for export. They're now producing high-end consumer electronics like the iPhone.
0: An interesting part of your book mentioned that Chinese consumption will build pressure on the global commodities markets. What types of frictions, what types of problems do you think may happen in the future, Sean?
1: Well, I mean, as you see people growing uh, in China, there's a huge demand for iron ore. There's huge demand for coal. You know, China has become the leader in electric vehicles, right? I mean, Tesla's there, but a lot of people in the rest of the world don't know about Xiaopeng. They don't know about Li Xiang, Wei Lai or NIO you know, there's a scores and scores of great Chinese brands that are emerging in the electric vehicle space that all need nickel and cobalt. Um, so when you look at it, China, I think there's going to be a race towards securing commodity assets. And that can also create a lot of tension, right? You see that China and Australia, you know, I consider Scott Morrison, the prime minister of Australia, who I know, actually, personally, I consider him to be a sinophobe who's spreading fear-mongering about China's rise. So there's tension now, is China gonna continue to buy iron ore from Australia, or are they gonna switch to Brazil? Um, You see that there's a lot of tension over coal also between Australia and China. I also think rare earths is going to be a hotspot, which is why I'm trying to invest in the rare earth sector, because when you look at it, China controls about 85 percent of all refined rare earth. And their refineries are a decade, maybe even two decades ahead of anything that you're going to get in the United States with Molycorp, or it's now called MP, actually, Um, and all of the, the rare earth. So basically you're gonna see a fight for securing access to commodities. And this is something that scares me um, because commodities will become an inflationary pressure that combined with what I consider to be an irresponsibly loose monetary policy by the Fed in the United States is gonna cause massive inflation 2022, 2023, and we're already seeing it right now. And also it can create wars. You know, I think people, countries historically go to war for ideological reasons, religious reasons, but a large part is access to commodities. And so we're in a very dangerous situation globally because we don't have pragmatic, respectful leadership in too many countries. I mean, you see Joe Biden last year called President, Chairman Xi Jinping a thug. And yesterday, he threatened Xi Jinping and said, if you help Russia, you're gonna pay the consequences. You know, that that type of, um, Threats, that type of name calling isn't really helpful. And I think Biden actually sounds like the thug, not Xi Jinping when you're threatening someone.
0: Chinese dream against the American dream. How do they compare?
1: You know, I think at the end of the day, Leo, people are people, you know, and it doesn't matter if you're under a communist system or you're under a democratic system. Uh, I think at the end of the day, people want to take care of their children. They want to have a better quality of life. They want their children to be able to get access to healthcare. They want their children to be better educated. They mm-hmm. want their families to be able to earn a decent living, to eat well, have nice clothes, have a roof over their head. Uh, you know, I think that's true pretty much anywhere. And I think it's a mistake that you know very often the Western world in many ways denigrates Chinese society and what is the Chinese dream. Because they say that Chinese must be mindless, brainwashed, you know, robot-like humans, you know, just following whatever the Communist Party of China um, tells them to do. At the end of the day, I think people are people. Now, the second answer to that, Leo, is that how can you realize a Chinese dream if education is unfair and too expensive, if healthcare is unfair? and too expensive. And that's why I think you see Xi Jinping's common prosperity drive of the last year is something that's really been welcomed by the Chinese population. You know, A lot of people criticize, perhaps rightly, how they went about cracking down on tech, how they went about cracking down on the education and training sectors. Um, And I have some criticisms on their methodology and how they did it and how the government communicated it. But at the end of the day, if you want to realize that Chinese dream, you have to be able to have low and middle class Chinese families be able to send their children to school and be able to send their families to see the doctor. And that's why that common prosperity drive and initiative is something that's really welcome in China. You know, I went to, I think 13, maybe 14 provinces last year. You know, So I went to about a third of the country and the optimism um, by people in Tibet, by people in Xinjiang, people in Hunan and Jiangxi, and I went all these places was really quite high, as was the support of Xi's common prosperity drive. So at the end of the day, Chinese, the same as Italians, the same as Americans, they're the same as Russians. They want to take care of their families.
0: I've got one final question I ask everyone who comes on the show. Share with us one memorable experience from your international career, and that could be a successful, a catastrophic, or a funny episode. Your pick, Sean.
1: For my international career, like as a businessman, you mean? Yes. Well, I have so many failures, Leo. It's, it's, it's incredible how many failures I've had. Um, you know, I've CMR is a company I started 16 years ago in 2005. It's a strategy consulting firm. Uh, We position ourselves as above McKinsey. Um, you know, we help Chinese brands and we help Western brands expand, but it hasn't always been easy. You know, there are times that I've definitely failed In that, I failed in a lot of other areas. I think maybe one of the most exciting experiences I've had was visiting Tibet last year. Um, So it was my second time visiting Tibet. I, I originally went in 2001. I went twice last year. And it's hard to describe just how dirt poor Tibet was in 2001, all the roads were dirt. I mean, it was poor. Last year, the infrastructure was incredible. The roads. Telecom. And so let me give you a brief story of someone I've met. He was a 42 year old Tibetan and he was the party secretary of his small village. And he said to me, Sean, two years ago, it used to take 48 hours to drive from Lhasa to my small village. 48 hours. Now it takes 40, 45 minutes because the government has built such incredible roads. So now tourists from Lhasa and other tourists from Han Chinese can come to our village and go peach picking or go into our hot springs. So we're able to generate a lot of income and revenue that way. And perhaps even more importantly, it used to be a two, three hour trip for my kids to go to school because they had to trudge along dirt roads. Now it's a five, 10 minute drive. So I think Leo, you know, it might not be a great answer about my international business career, but I think what's important is to see how fast China has changed and how positive China has changed, going from 2001 to 2021, my view of Tibet, but even more from that, from that hardy secretary. Again, he's a communist member and he's Tibetan, right? He's not a Han Chinese, he's a Tibetan. And his quality of life has been tangibly improved in the last five years because of roads. And so that to me is always gonna stay with me in my heart is how I remember how happy the villagers were about being able to eat now. And, you know, I saw it. I saw 20 years ago that villagers like him would not be able to leave a good quality of life. And now they do.
0: Sean, to wrap this up, after listening to this episode, who should connect with you and tell us a little bit more about your company?
1: Well, Joe Biden should connect with me because he clearly has a really bad strategy on how to deal with China's rise. Um, I think if you're talking from a business standpoint, You know, I've got a lot of different uh, investment things. I think if you're a global CEO of a Fortune 2000 company, if you're the Asia Pacific president of a Fortune 2000 company and you want to understand better about China, you might want to reach out to me. We've helped. The best companies have come to us over the last 16 years. You know, Apple has been a client. Samsung has been a client. Uh, Richemont in the luxury side. UGG, Echo, when it comes to shoes really the world's best brands come to us, as well as the best investors. You know, We've done a lot of work with Fidelity, um, the mutual fund giant, doing due diligence for them, as well as private equity firms like uh, Warburg Pincus. So if you really want to profit uh, off of China's rise, and you really want to develop that right strategy dealing with China's growth, come find me and I'll introduce you to one of my colleagues who can put you on the right
0: path. Sean, I want to thank you for your insights. Thank you for joining us on the International Business Podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Leo, for having me. Have a great day to
0: everyone. You can find the podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe. Do not miss the weekly episodes. And are you an international professional? Connect with us on LinkedIn to come on the show for now. Cheers.